I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Elb jumped up on his bunk jumped on his head, from his bunk onto his head, from his bunk onto his head, from his bunk onto his head, right? And then I've gone from the bunk, I slipped in off the head and hit the chest, from the bunk on into the chest, bang, bang. And uh, he wasn't dead, you know, but he was sort of like, oh, 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 yeah. So I've taken his shoelaces off him, tied his hands behind his back, and uh, and then I've taken the sheets off him, wrapped the sheets around his neck, lifted him up with Mad Charlie, got the sheets around his neck and I've tied the sheet up over, over the top railing of the Obso gate pushed him down and I've gone out of the cell and I've closed the cell door there was no one that saw us we were pretty quick in here and um, anyway at 7 o'clock that morning uh, they've opened his cell door and, and found out that he, he committed suicide Welcome to I Can Murder a Podcast, episode number six of series eight, a third of the way through this series. And we've just got, got off board the Concordia. <laughs> and who's that over there? It's Ben Carter. Hello, hello. It's good to be here. You've literally been around the Mediterranean recently, haven't you? I was about 300 miles away from the crash. Blumen Nora. Wow. Mm, yes, yeah, so, I mean, that's like when people uh, mark themselves as safe when there's a tragedy somewhere else. I'm not trying to... At Notre Dame, when that went up in flames, everyone, I went there once, I went there once, we get it, we've all been to Notre Dame. Uh, but yes, uh, yeah, I was over in Italy, lovely old time, but I'm happy to be back here with you boys talking about crime. Yeah, re- well, really good to have you back, and it, we're certainly getting through the series now, aren't we? We're a third of the way through, 12 yeah. big cases still on the way, there we go, there goes one of us at least. Yeah. Um, but there goes the second one, that's probably Tom and Dan, and here comes Ben. <laughs> Two different angles. Yeah, yeah thanks, thanks, boys. You both yeah. did me there. Uh, but no, this one, this week, we've we've had a bit, we've had a lot of feedback, really lovely feedback in terms of they're a bit, a bit more of a niche series so far. We've had Mayhem, the band, the Costa Concordia disaster, and now we go over to Australia for a case that Tom. When I saw the list and we sat down and sort of went through our cases, this was the one that stood out to me as I'm out. I don't have a f-ing clue about this case, but I'm excited to have a little read up. Like the captain last week, you were out of your depth. Absolutely out of my depth. But this has been one of the most interesting ones and most, I don't know if I can say enjoyable, I just did, most enjoyable ones to research. He's quite the character. He's now going to be, I mean, I've known a chopper read for a long time, watched the, um, it's, I remember seeing the chopper movie at my old video store when I was a kid and always like, that's an interesting looking film, but from a long, long time ago. And I was always like, what that's about and then a friend of mine from college um he 
basically loved the film, quoted it all the time, and I watched it, and then I started quoting it all the time. And yeah, I've been very interested by him as a as a figure, and he's one that weirdly when I th- when people say like criminals you'd like to meet or interview, mm. um, he never comes to mind because I, I do. We'll get into it, but and I keep saying the phrase figure of fun, but he is very like looked at as a bit of a character more than a real bad guy but yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll go into it anyway but i think he's gonna be my new answer to a lot of people when they ask who would you like to interview if you're interviewing a serial killer or da, 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 da. or have a beer with yeah definitely he's a very very interesting character though there's one thing from last week that we i need to address that we we haven't uh spoken about is dan didn't actually pick the what won the uh Interesting facts or the Tommy trivia last oh, week. Oh shit! It was never actually said. Yeah, because we're currently level, aren't we? Uh, I don't know if we are, but um, I'm sure someone I think us. you are actually level. Yeah, so it is quite important. There was the um, the frozen captain with the quill, or there was the gold in the in the ocean. Uh, well, I'm, I'm really sorry, Ben. On reflection, I really enjoyed the kind of the ghouly ghost stories of uh, or side of things to Tommy's trivia. So I think I'm going to give it to Tom. But yours was excellent, nonetheless. So we're six episodes in. Oh, well, I was five in, so it's that. If you so if you guys were right, that makes it three two. But yeah, but well, if anyone any listeners do know different, let us know because I'm not sure if it was equal. But we'll, we'll get into it today. I've, I'm excited for my, my my trivia today as well. Looking forward to it. So this week it is the case of Mark Chopper Reed, also known as the case of Xcon to Icon, Australia's most feared criminal, the Toe Cutter Nutter, and Chopper and the Overcoat Gang. Which sounds kind of like an old like rhythm and blues band. The toe cut and nutter, did you make that? Yes, you've got me there straight away. Um, yeah, I've got me there. Uh, but it, it works. It does work to mm. the alleged stories. I just like the name Chopper. Yeah. Just simple Chopper. But um, yes, the toe cut and nutter, um, I mean, the blowtorch on the toes as well, um, which I know Dan gets famously gets cold. I don't think even he would stoop to that level of trying to heat his feet. I'm thinking about it. The feet heater beater. Ooh. My beater. Because he does beat a few people up. He loses a lot of fights as well, but he does beat a few up. Thought you meant I'd beat my meat. No. But yes, we're going to do our usual. We'll go through the early life of Chopper Reed and then go into uh, the timeline of, of, of his crimes and also discuss what we think about um, some of the stories. He does. He loves to spin a yarn. A lot of people doubt things he said and, doubt, and can't really see the fiction or can't really see the stories from the fiction. Can't really see what is fiction and what is fact with Chopper Reed. Um, which makes him even more interesting. But a lot of the cases done before where we think, oh, it's just bullshit. And it doesn't annoy me as much about him when he's... Because I feel like it's all part of his mystique rather than an, an annoying just saying things for the sake of it. But yes, we'll, go, we'll get into the case of Chopper. So yeah, very excited to jump into this one. I think as well, when we talk about cases we've covered before, sometimes Robert Maudsley comes up as you can kind of see their side. Now, with Chopper, he very much sort of paints the picture of he only stole or committed crimes against other criminals which i think is highly divisive uh, when he says it but i think what what i like about him is when we have covered some of the other 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 murderers or, or criminals that like to speak up their own crimes they kind of very much elaborate on their points whereas he is so blunt mm. that i believe him yeah he's just blunt got words believed. as well yeah he has indeed. And speaking of a way with words, we're going to throw over to our lovely producer, Dan, to set the scene. Chopper Reed's life and crimes form a captivating and highly disturbing narrative in the criminal underworld of Australia that remains just as prominent now, almost a decade after his death. 
Chopper's early life was riddled with violence and criminal tendencies, which would be a trend that evolved with him throughout his life. As he grew older, he became deeply entrenched in the criminal world, engaging in acts of violence, extortion and drug trafficking. He gained a fearsome reputation as a standover man and enforcer, instilling fear in his rivals and associates alike, earning a particular notoriety due to whispered rumours regarding blowtorches, bolt cutters and the removal of various body parts. Throughout his criminal career, Chopper was involved in numerous confrontations, including shootings and brutal assaults, leading to multiple arrests and convictions. Despite spending a significant portion of his life behind bars, Chopper's notoriety only grew, partly due to his brashness, charisma and audacious persona, and partly due to the reputation he had formed. Remarkably, he capitalised on his criminal infamy and transformed himself into a best-selling author, recounting his criminal exploits in a series of books. Chopper Reed's life remains an enigmatic and controversial tale, embodying the dark and complex underbelly of the criminal world. So yeah, I think from that you can gather it's it's a, certainly I think the aftermath in particular uh, is is of intrigue to me, but it's a fascinating case, and I'm really glad that it's one we are covering together today. Um, Australian case is always quite interesting, and we've covered a lot as well. So if you do find our, our Australian cases interesting, we've also covered on the on the main channel the Snowtown murders, Ivan Milat, uh, the Port Arthur massacre, uh, Catherine Knight, and we've also done a load of extra ones over on our website. Which at the time of recording, we've got 121 extra episodes on icmap.co.uk. We've covered the case of Mr. Cruel, the Father's Day Child drownings chris dawson the podcast killer gabe watson the great barrier reef honeymoon murder the pajama girl murder there's there's loads of them and they all have good case titles as well over in australia mm. i find and chopper uh certainly what the toe cutter nutter certainly uh mm. one like no other a lot of people saying they're against the toe cutter nutter as a name are um, they saying that already yeah lots of people it's bubbling away actually in discord oh, um saying about oh, let's not call it that <laughs> but uh chopper a lot, lot of thumbs up underneath that so um let's jump into it mark <laughs> mark brandon reed more notoriously known by his nickname of chopper was born on the 17th of november 1954 in melbourne australia Chopper was raised in a working-class family in a small home on the outskirts of the Melbourne city of Collingwood. Though his stay here was short-lived and the city has since changed radically, the particular area at the time was known for its poverty and crime rates. Despite its blue-collar origins, the city is now known as one of the hippest places to live in Australia. And I did a little look into this as well. They've got a big fo- Aussie football team out there. Uh, apparently, Collingwood these days is a bit of a celebrity hotspot. Uh, Rob Lowe, Mr Bean, Dwayne Johnson, Usain Bolt, John Cena and even the Dalai Lama have, uh, have all been spotted uh, in Collingwood football club merchandise. Oh, wow. Interesting gang. Yeah, I mean, the Dalai Lama, after his recent exploits, I don't think mm. I want him in my gang. Yeah. Anyway, Chopper's father, Keith Reed, was of Irish descent and was a veteran soldier of World War II. Later in life, Keith worked as a tram driver, whilst his mother, Jean Reed, who was said to be a devout Seventh day Adventist, worked as a cleaner at a local canning factory. Um, and there's loads of speculation as to how he got the name Chopper, but it wouldn't have come from the mum working at a canning factory, would it? That'd be ludicrous. I can't see the link. Yeah, same. Chopping a can. Chop- yeah. Can chopper. 
Uh, it doesn't uh, yeah. work. Doesn't ah, work. But the mum worked loads. She did long yeah, shifts. Yeah. Glad. Uh, Chopper was the only biological son to Keith and Jean. And uh, interesting though, I mean, he was the only biological son, but he did have a younger sister who he unofficially adopted, uh, called Nicole. And we'll, we'll talk about Nicole in a little bit more detail shortly. We'll also discuss the parents and family dynamic in more detail too. Uh, but he and Nicole's childhood was far from idyllic, with both of them experiencing several difficulties that influenced their later path in life. So due to the family's financial struggles, Chopper was placed in a variety of foster homes and orphanages for the first five years of his life. This took him from Collingwood to other suburbs of Melbourne, including Fitzroy, Preston and Thomastown. Thomastown sounds great. Whilst in the care of the children's home, Chopper very much struggled to fit in. And despite him being so young, this had a profound impact on the child's identity and sense of belonging. Uh, on his mother, and we said Chopper has quite a way of words, so we'll be doing a lot of quotes within this episode. Chopper said, if they don't want the accent as well, Dan. Fuck that. When I was born, my mother said that I was not a gift from God. Things went downhill from there. My mother was a devout Seventh-day Adventist who placed religion above anything else. I had no mother. She was devoted to her church, and that was it. And you were either with her or against her. Chopper was returned to his parents' custody when he was six years old, but this was not without issue. Apparently, his father, Keith, would regularly beat Chopper for the slightest infraction or would abuse him at his mother's request or recommendation. Jean, Chopper's mother, was definitely the ruler of the house, with some speculating that his father, Keith, was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of his time in the army, and was eager to make the rest of the family suffer, just as he did. Though Chopper often avoids the subject in various interviews he has given, it is widely believed that he is regularly sexually molested by a family member for four years, between the ages of eight and twelve. Yeah, from some of the interviews I've watched of him, he speaks in very different opinions of his father. In uh, in uh, in one of the interviews, he was like, "Oh no, the mate, the, the guy was a laugh. The guy, I thought about going Aussie then, but I didn't." But he was like, "Oh no, the uh, the guy was a laugh. The guy was a laugh." And then in other interviews, he's like, "Oh man, my dad was mad. I was scared of him. He always talking about guns and right wing stuff, and I didn't like that." But with an Australian accent, that's what it was like, kind of. Yeah, his dad, and even later on, after what he'd gone to do, his dad kind of found it funny and found it in his, yeah. his criminal history quite funny and he was quite proud of him for doing it and even berated him for not going further with some of the things that he did. So it's a very odd, odd relationship. So with regards to the abuse that he suffered between the ages of 8 and 12, some have speculated that this abuse came at the hands of his father, Keith, though this has often been dismissed. According to Chopper, his father would go to bed every night with a loaded rifle under his pillow. And just before bed, he would regularly preach to his son about his own far-right ideologies, rifle in hand, whilst also discussing, potentially in an effort to brainwash his own child, the necessity to be prepared and to be armed at all times. On his father, Chopper said, My dad was a good guy. He gave me weapons and taught me all about how they work and how to look after them. He taught me his moral code and how to develop a love of brutality. I recall him saying one night before bed, Remember, son... Just because you're going to kill a man is no reason for discourtesy. From an early age, Chopper displayed a rebellious nature and had a tendency for violence. He was involved in numerous fights and altercations, both at school and within his neighbourhood. What, what is the difference between a fight and an altercation? Is that more? Is an altercation more of a scuffle? I think you can have an argument, can't you? It could be an altercation. Like, if um, Dan thinks his lamb's slightly undercooked, there'll be an altercation with the waiter, but if the, if the chef comes out, that'll be a fight. To be fair, I'm not a fan of lamb. Yeah, because undercooked. <laughs> Uh, that was an altercation. 
He also occasionally got into fights and was said to be heavily disruptive at the orphanage, which caused him to be moved in and around various care settings. Chopper claims that most of these fights occurred due to the fact that he would often stand up against bullies, which supposedly earned him a reputation for his toughness and willingness to engage in physical confrontations. So we've got altercations, confrontations and fights. He would later go on to make the bold but slightly vulnerable claim that by the age of 15 I had been on the losing end of several hundred fights. Nobody clip that and make it like I said that. I've never been in a fight. I've never lost any either. Mm. We've not been in any fights. You threw a can at my head. It wasn't a fight. Exactly. We've never been in any fights. You'd lost before we started. Shut the fuck up. But yeah, I think that's quite a sweet thing to say. Yeah, he was bullied a lot as a kid. Like, he was very small and slight compared to his classmates as a kid, the pictures of him. And yeah, he, he was just picked on a lot. But yeah, um, even from losing fights, you learn, you learn a lot, don't you? You learn how to take, yeah. take a punch. And that definitely be something that he would take on late life, being very tough. His aggressive tendencies, again, according to Chopper, stemmed from a desire to protect himself and those around him in an environment that he perceived as hostile. His younger quote-unquote adopted sister, Nicole, would also back up this claim, saying in a later interview, He was my best friend. He looked after me since I was 14. I got into so much trouble, but would have got into so much more trouble or died if it wasn't for him. He always kept an eye out and kept people watching me. The police didn't know what to do, and in those days, they put runaways with criminals, so that's where the cycle began. So yeah, to clarify the adopted uh, situation with Nicole, basically what happened is Nicole met Chopper when she was 14 after running away from an abusive family home back in New Zealand. And he basically took the troubled teen under his wing as his adopted little sister, having also been molested as a child himself. So she had uh, a history of family abuse. She is described in Chopper's autobiography as, quote, his adopted little sister. So probably just like a friend that he looked after, really, more than a adopted little sister but showing signs of vulnerability isn't he which is fine at school chopper was regularly the ire of his teachers and continually struggled to fit in again he would claim that he only got in fights to protect himself or others and this is why he was constantly engaged in disruption and acts of violence however some classmates tell a very different story painting chopper as the aggressor in most instances it is whilst in school at south yara primary that chopper was given the nickname chopper and whilst many believe that it may have been given to him due to his violent nature or later act involving his own ear and particular limbs of his enemies, he was actually affectionately given the nickname by a classmate due to his resemblance to a Hanna-Barbera cartoon character, which is basically a little fat dog with a tie on it. little purple tie. Bulldog. I can't really see, from my opinion, can't really see the resemblance, but... Um, no. No, so Hannah Hanna Barbera did like um, uh, Scooby Doo and the Flintstones and Yogi Bear. Top Cat? Probably, I bloody love Top, probably Top Cat. How you doing, TC? Looks like one of the villains out of maybe Top Cat or Tom. Actually, he looks quite friendly in some of the pictures we've found of uh, Chopper the dog. Um, yeah, so Top Cat's in there, definitely. Just looked yeah. at it. Looks, yeah, yeah Fred, I wonder why he's got the tie on. What's he going for an interview? Doesn't matter. Um, so it was at school that Chopper learned how to properly fight and defend himself. He was seemingly living his life, even as a young boy, without any kind of fear of reprimand or consequence. One of his very few friends at school, perhaps it was the one that gave him the nickname, approached Chopper one day and told him, Shut your eyes and let me hit you. Once you lose your fear of being hit, you're ready to fight. Then you can just wade in and keep swinging until you win. Yeah, that's quite interesting. 
advice there. Keep swinging until you win. Never give up is kind yeah. of the way I'm, I'm, what I'm taking from that. Yeah. Um, Keep swinging your hips until you, um, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, until something drips. <laughs> no. Drips. Swinging your hips. I was taking that as a sexual thing. Yeah, no, but drips. You yeah. get sorted out, mate. Yeah, okay. Get your pipes checked. Yeah. And after taking several punches to the chest and face to the point that he became bloodied, Chopper found that he actually quite enjoyed it. He seemed to condition himself on his ability to take pain, and he liked the fact that he could handle so much of it. Reminds me of like Mick Foley from the wrestling days. Just took, yeah. a, took a beating, but kept coming back. Little Homer in the, when he's boxing. Yes, yeah, all about the stamina. Back under his parents' care, Chopper's childhood was also marked by a considerable amount of family instability. His parents' marriage was tumultuous, with frequent arguments and instances of physical violence between the two. The chaotic home environment had a continued impact on him and he sought solace outside of the family structure, but rarely found comfort elsewhere. As a result of not wanting to be at home and not wanting to be at school either, Chopper found companionship amongst local gangs and, quote, street thugs. I didn't want you to think I'd wrote street thugs because that's kind of probably the lingo I would use, where he developed a reputation as a fearless and ruthless individual as well as an accomplished street fighter. At the age of <laughs> street fighter. At the age of 13, he joined the Surrey Road Gang and Ooh. soon harnessed a reputation for himself. And this is where Chopper finally, perhaps for the first time in his life, felt somewhat of an identity. The Surrey Road Gang. Mm -hmm. RSG. The SRG boys. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> On his childhood, Chopper would say the following. I've never stopped to, um, to analyse the... Uh, I've never stopped to analyse it. I've never drawn it or given it any great thought, what, what makes me tick. It really it, it amuses me when other people say, oh, I know you. Uh, why is that? Oh, I've spent so much time with you. I know you. We don't know what makes anyone tick. You know, we, we, everyone's a mystery to everyone and everyone is a mystery to themselves, I believe. Throughout his youth, Chopper had dabbled in various small-scale criminal activities. His troubled childhood led Chopper with little option but to develop his hard man persona. You always get them at school, don't you? Sort of people that, like, walk around with the chest first. And Chopper would use his skills at dishing out violence and enduring pain and saw him become the gang leader of the Surrey Road Gang by his mid-teens. So it's a bit quick progression there. Yeah. Uh, they engaged in petty theft, vandalism and straight brawls. Uh, were you in the very 40s kind of mood when you wrote this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Put my pipe down and smoking pipe. And uh, yeah, <laughs> great. There were no scuffles or um, what was the other word? Altercation. No, oh, yeah, that was full out street brawls, man. Yeah, man. You can get if they if those start, get yourself inside. Oh yeah, because street brawls can entangle people. The casual passerby could be knocked out very quickly in a street brawl if they're not careful. That's when that's when it's like a puff of smoke and then people yeah. arms and legs sticking yeah, out. Yeah, that's all you along. can see. Yeah. I get for some reason that is all my Twitter feed is at the moment. Now that they've done that whole suggested for you thing, all I get is bloody. I got the other the other week. I got a deer jumping off a roof of a car multi story car park. I don't want to see that. <laughs> and the caption was like suicidal deer. It was really sad. And the noise was horrific. Why you bet you watched it more than once? I did a double take. <laughs> you put and I felt really sad. No, I put it on when I go to sleep. <laughs> Could have been a moose. 
doesn't make it any easier, does it? No. So they engage in petty theft, vandalism and street brawls, often as a means of asserting their dominance and gaining respect among their peers. The gang's petty crimes would also include stealing from drug dealers, intimidation and burglary. By the age of 14, Chopper was made a ward of the state after his mother disowned him for abandoning her church and then getting arrested for burglary. Uh, so a ward of the state is essentially a person under the government's protection or custody. And this can be an adult or child with a cognitive disability or someone that the court or government deems to require legal protection until they reach the age of 18 or resume parental or foster care. So basically, his family disowned him and he had nowhere else to legally go. And this would have an impact on him in a way you might not expect later. Um, but as a result of this, combined with the fact that he was regularly getting into street fights and committing petty crimes, Chopper was placed into several different mental institutions as a result. And he is said to have received more than 50 doses of electroshock therapy whilst in these facilities. And from some of the other cases we have covered previously, electroconvulsive therapy can have a serious impact on brain structure, cognitive impairment, as well as effects on the heart. On his mother disowning him and him becoming a ward of the state, Chopper said, You want to hear about my childhood? I'll tell you. But I don't dwell on it, nor do I use it as an excuse for how I turned up. I didn't have a very nice childhood, that's that. My mother felt that if I could be deemed mentally insane, then I would be forgiven in the eyes of God and be able to go to heaven. So the thing that's interesting to note here is that Chopper wouldn't have had to go to these mental institutions and, and have this kind of therapy with, with, with him if his mother didn't disown him and he still had a home address that he could go to. So he is very much, he's put in the, into the harm's way by his mother's actions here, which you'd like to think she knew that, that that wouldn't have happened. But we've dealt with a lot of cases before with very religious parents who want their child to be straightened out so you could... You know, it wouldn't be too much of a shock for her to actually think that this might be good for him. Yeah, it seems very much like she's view she's deeming him as a lost cause by this mm. point, which is uh, really sad. So, but as his mother wouldn't have him in the house again, he was sent between homes for boys and various mental institutions. This sparked his first genuine feelings of resentment, which only fueled his anger and desires to lash out further. And by the age of fifteen, Chopper was already six foot and weighed more than thirteen stone, which in kilograms is about I want to say ninety, but. What do we think it is? I'm really more of a stone guy, so... 82. Oh, wow. 82 far. and a half. 182 pounds. But yeah, so he's he's quite a big lad for the age of 16, and um, especially with him, you know, knowing how to wail on people and be wailed on. Mm. Um, quite the intimidating guy. Whether this was his choice or not, he had become an incredibly tough, incredibly resilient, and incredibly aggressive individual by this point. It is here that he took on his first job, working as a nightclub bouncer. At 15. Yeah, this, I thought, spoke volumes for the kind of stature and reputation he had. Um, I, the fact that a 15-year-old is working security at your own at your nightclub, mm. unbelievable. But he was a big, big 15-year-old. And just imagine a massive suit, black suit that's too big and you can't even see his hands. Yeah, I, I, I could say, yeah. yeah. It makes me think of that time we went to a wedding, our friend's wedding. And um, you got really chatty to the barman who, and you get asking him to make you coffees. And then yeah. he was quite a young lad. And you were saying if you ever won the lottery, you get him to work for you. Yeah. Which is yeah. quite felt a bit spooky, isn't it? Yeah. Felt Just a bit trying, trying to do my part. Got loads of free coffee, though. Charmer. I don't look good with any of this, so. <laughs> no, you got loads of free let's, coffee. Let's not put any of this in. <laughs> I think it needs to no, make its I way in. I don't know. It paints me as quite creepy. It's true. I thought it was a lie. Uh, Dan's got my back. Please take this out. <laughs> what do you know, Dan's done Ben? <laughs> Come back next time for another Dan Does Ben. <laughs>
On his first proper job, Chopper said, I was a bloody big, strong kid for 15. I like belting people up and kicking them out of the place. I was good at it. I don't question that, to be fair. If he was, in fact, hired by a nightclub at the age of 15, I I believe he was good at belting people up and kicking them out completely. Yeah, it was during this time that he continued to leverage his reputation as being known as one of the best street fighters in Melbourne. And by the age of 16, he was one of the most feared fighters and probably one of the most efficient bouncers in the city. The following year, aged 17, Chopper was convicted of physically assaulting three police officers after they had approached him and tried to intimidate him after he had thrown one of their friends out of the nightclub he worked at. Um, which I thought was interesting. So they've said, so you let this guy back in. He's, he's harmless. He's not done anything. It was just ordering coffees. And um, hitting on the young barman. no. Definitely not. So yeah, um, these these police officers approach him, sort of try and convince him to let their friend back in the club and uh, Chopper's having none of it. So he ends up uh, beating up three adult police officers. And uh, so he had a very big altercation, scruffle street brawl with these, uh, with these police officers. And as a result, he was charged with assault. Chopper's criminal activities notably escalated after these experiences, having left his parents' custody and undertaken the involuntary electroshock therapy. As he grew older, so did his brutality. In his late teens and early 20s, he became involved in multiple armed robberies, drug trafficking and extortion. He associated himself with notorious criminal figures and immersed himself in Melbourne's criminal underworld. Chopper's reputation as a fearsome and unpredictable criminal grew, fueled by his propensity for violence and his willingness to use intimidation as a tool. So although he's got like, he has got this... I didn't want to say he had an aura about him, but he has got quite a, I don't know. I think he's got an aura. I think you find that aura is not always a good thing. That's true. That's true. Well, he basically, he used his personality and his reputation to his, uh, to his benefit. And by whatever means necessary, he would go after his own gang members, other gang members, and he would even go after people in the street. But according to him, he would only ever go after people that were criminals. Chopper had a troubled childhood that played a significant role in shaping his future as a criminal. Yeah, I, mean, I think he very much played off the idea of being a loose cannon and being unpredictable, and it, it, that made him all the more disconcerting for the people you know, in his company, not knowing what he was going to do next. And yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of lent on like the electrotherapy and stuff like that and saying how it affected his brain. Like him playing that as part of what he, he did and yes. the way he thinks to make him even a bit more scary for the people around him. In his early 20s, his criminal activities escalated and were mostly associated with robbing drug dealers and brothels and kidnapping and torturing members of the criminal underworld, often allegedly using a blowtorch and or bolt cutters to remove the toes of his multiple victims as an incentive for them to produce enough money in order for him to stay alive. As Tom said, he played a lot of his own reputation. He sort of spoke up his own uh, his own abilities. And I suppose a lot of his storytelling, some people took with a pinch of salt. But this whole thing of cutting off toes with bolt cutters or burning them first with a blowtorch and then removing them, um, a lot of people have stated that they don't believe this to have ever happened. However, in some interviews and even in his books, he's kind of pointed a lot more towards the fact that it did happen and it's something that he did multiple times. Yeah, there's an infamous interview that we'll play a little bit of it now. I always thought the uh, removal of toes with a bolt cutter was rather humane. As I said to a mate of mine, Linus Patrick Driscoll, who was head of a group called the Toe Cutters in the uh, late 60s and early 70s, I thought that uh, cutting people's toes off with a bolt cutter was rather puffy. Oh, you know, I, you know, I thought it was rather effeminate. Why is that? Oh, like a blowtorch, you know? The smell of burning flesh in the air. <laughs> So yeah, in that he's basically saying about how he actually thought that the toe cutting off people's toes was quite, in his own words, he said puffy. 
Um, but then he said that using a blowtorch was the way to do it and the smell of blood and um, smell of the skin burning. And he does his infamous uh, chopper laugh after saying that. Yeah, but as like with that with that whole interview, it's quite interesting one to watch. He is playing up to the camera massively. He did go on to say later on that in, in reports, you know, he would just elaborate and make things up just because for the fun of it and then see the kind of fear in the people's eyes whilst he's saying, saying the stories. But he would lay out, yeah. So a lot of things you do take with a pinch of salt. Um, but yeah, he, I do think he must have taken part in some type of torture in his time. Well, I, d- I did think the whole thing about having toes removed was was pretty interesting. Did you? Yeah. Okay. Actually, really interesting. Okay, gosh. Play that jingle. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. Oh, welcome back, guys. Hope everyone's had a brilliant, fabulous week. Uh, a lot of people have been sort of reaching out and asking me if I'm okay with the emergence of Tommy's terrific trivia. And to those people, I say thank you, thank you so much. And I'm I'm okay. I'm I'm fine. Life could be worse. Uh, some people said it's like I've I've lost a part of me this series, but it's not like I've <laughs> it's not like I've lost any toes or, or a limb. So today, BC's IFs asks the question. How many limbs and body parts can we live without? Uh, so let's start with the uh, with the toes and fingers. Uh, I know they're not technically I've limbs. I've seen people with no arms and legs. Yeah, well, I'm gonna we'll get to that, won't we? Okay, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So let's start with the toes and fingers. Can you live without toes and fingers? Uh, the answer is yes. Ben Carter's interesting fact: It's possible to live and walk without any of your toes, but your gait will need to compensate which is a nice rhyme to remember as well. Your gait will need to compensate. Compensate that gait. Losing your toes will adversely affect your balance and stability and potentially change your walking biomechanics. But there are prosthetics on the market today and shoe inserts available that may benefit that too, depending on how many toes you've, you've lost or if you've lost all of them. Uh, can you live without a lower body? And uh, as Tom said, he's seen, he's seen a few people right, in person or... So you're nice and home, I think. Oh. Uh, it really depends on how you define lower body. Uh, people have lived after losing legs with the assistance of technology and caregivers. The bladder, bowels, kidneys, genitals are all part of the lower abdomen. And it's hard to imagine life without these organs, but some people do survive without them. There was obviously notoriously Carl Pilkington's Pillow Man, who was uh, known as the living torso. Uh, he lived 63 years with just a head and a torso. Did he have he a was knob? Able to... Sorry? Did he have a knob? He did, yes, because he had four children and, and also got Ooh. married, was able to roll cigarettes with his face and mouth. Oh, that's a, the pillowcase might be quite an interesting one to cover one time. Yeah, I don't think he did any. You said pillowcase? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then I thought, all right, well, we've looked at, we've looked at, we've looked at um, feet, toes, the pillow man. Then I thought, well, some people say the biggest organ is skin. And I thought, can a human survive being skinned? Um, no, they can't. Ben Carter's interesting fact. However, they can survive uh, with a, a full uh, flaying having happened to them. Uh, they can survive for an estimated few hours up to a few days after being flayed, which is... Well, full body burnt. Well, but didn't really... We didn't get time for that, to look at that, but okay. that's an interesting one. Definitely yeah. think about that. That would be interesting. People have survived really um, high degree burns, haven't they? All over yeah. the body. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, how many organs and limbs could you uh, remove and have the body survive without? And theoretically, surgeons could uh, amputate all of your limbs, remove your eyes, nose, ears, larynx, tongue, lower spine, and rectum. 
and support you by machines in an intensive care unit. They can also potentially take away your skull, heart and remaining lung, which using the machines they'd be able to keep you alive for a very short while, but they could still keep you alive. I don't know why, I wouldn't say there are any people out there actually actively doing this. Yeah. Uh, but then we got onto the bit that I found really interesting. So then I thought, right, can you live without a heart? Because they're, this, this, some of the sites I went on suggested that you can. A lot, a lot of girls say you have. <laughs> <laughs> Heartless Carter. An individual named Stan Larkin. How many days do you reckon this guy lived without a heart, but with an artificial variation of a heart? Four. Four days. Okay. Danny Boy? Uh, 555. Maybe. That's an astonishing guess, and it's uh, an astonishing answer. Yeah, 555 days. <laughs> the uh, interesting facts team in his, in his ear, I reckon. I think you've seen how long uh, it was. Yeah. So Stan Larkin lived for an astonishing 555 days without a human heart, whilst waiting for a heart transplant. The 25-year-old father of three from Michigan had a rare form of cardiomyopathy, which meant that he was able to live for 555 days outside of the hospital using a total artificial heart, which is basically a load of machinery with some cables and pumps in a backpack before eventually going on to receive a heart transplant. Apparently now he's absolutely thriving, uh, according to his doctor. Now Larkin didn't realise that his heart was suffering until nine years ago when he collapsed without warning whilst playing in a basketball game. And sadly, his brother Dominique, who's just a year younger than him, was found to have the exact same condition too. Larkin's real heart was removed from his body in November of 2014 and it was replaced with a device that allowed Larkin to stay home instead of in a hospital whilst waiting to receive a transplant. His new heart finally arrived 555 days later in May of 2016. So basically this heart is called a Syncardia Temporary Artificial Heart. Um, it included chambers and four valves and two tubes that went into the left side of his body beneath his ribcage. And all of this then went into a backpack that he had to wear for 555 days, 24-7. How long? 555, that magic number. And with his life-saving backpack in tow, Larkin even started playing pickup games of basketball, uh, which I thought that's, that's bold. That's bold if you're on a heart, artificial heart. Just take it easy, Larkin. But he enjoyed time with his children and rode around in his car with his friends. It's just like a real heart, Larkin said. It's just a bag of tubes coming out of you. But other than that, it feels like a real heart. It felt just like a backpack with books in it, like you were going to school. So yeah, interesting stuff really, I thought. <laughs> Fucking hell. You could have stopped just at how long he lived with an artificial heart. Didn't they know? This, did I was going to say this is becoming <laughs> Ben Carter's interesting stories rather than interesting facts. He nailed yeah. the first half, Ben. To be fair, well, yeah. the edit might not, you know, might make it <laughs> cut it all. Yeah, <laughs> fuck's sake. How long do you think it is? Five for five. Yeah, good number. <laughs> Back to the episode. That yarn has been. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, some people have been asking me how I am. That looks like a rambling madman. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and back to the episode. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. He tried to justify these crimes as revenge against those that had bullied or wronged him. In particular, he focused the blame on the children who had tormented him at school and the parents who had abused him and abandoned him. It is worth noting that Chopper's criminal activities were not limited to external targets. He was known to target members of his own criminal fraternity often resorting to violence as a means of settling disputes or exerting dominance. Chopper's confrontational nature and his willingness to use extreme measures earned him both respect and fear within criminal circles, and he almost had a comparison drawn to that of Robin Hood. He robbed and insulted the powerful to mostly look out for those in need. Again, this is according to Chopper. 
And with that, I think he he saw himself as the person in need as he would take the money for himself. It wasn't going around dishing it out to loads of people, but he thought if people are getting money from, you know, um, dealing heroin and getting people addicted to heroin and, you know, why do they have a right to be swanning around with money? Why can't I have their money? So he saw, obviously he's not targeting people who are needy and stealing off them. He's stealing off people who don't deserve the money. Now living independently off the rewards from his criminal activities, Chopper soon realized that stealing from drug dealers was much more profitable than preying on ordinary citizens or other gang members. Not only did the dealers possess very large sums of cash, but they also could not complain about their losses to the police, for obvious reasons. He would later use these activities to promote himself as the kingpin of Melbourne's criminal underworld, a self-dubbed criminal who only stole from criminals and, once again allegedly, never harmed an innocent person. It is here that Chopper's grasp of the criminal underworld would slowly become too much for him to handle. It is here that Chopper's own arrogance or fearless nature would lead to his ultimate story to be told. And it is here that we move to the timeline of the case of Mark Chopper Reed. December 1971. Chopper commits his first murder when, at the age of 17, he kills a local docker and painter, Desmond Costello. Desmond was a known criminal within the area with a criminal history dating as far back as 1943. His cause of death was gunshot wounds to the head feloniously inflicted on or about the 12th day of December 1971 by a person or persons and at a place unknown to me, as stated by the coroner, which is quite a sentence within itself. Desmond was thrown into a pub's keg cellar where he remained for more than 24 hours slowly dying. Chopper returned the following morning and slept on his throat until he died, which is quite... He's 17 at this age as well. Yeah, he goes in one of his final interviews he ever did. He goes back to this at the the keg cellar is still there and he looks down on it. And as soon as the door is opened, he sort of does the old sort of chopper laugh. Mm. And like, oh yeah, that's where it was. Um, Sort of, yeah. Apparently this uh, Desmond Costello was making threats to him and saying that uh, if Chopper came near him, he would remove Chopper's weapon and place it up his anus. Uh, and Chopper didn't like that very much. This murder would later be told to be the result of an organised kill. Desmond's body was found at the Eastern Freeway on Alexandra Parade in an excavation pit. It was only after fingerprint analysis that the body was confirmed to be that of Desmond Costello. Now that the investigators knew the name of the man's body, they traced it to his last known movements before his murder, but the investigation fell flat when Desmond's co-workers on the docks would not give any information as other fellow co-workers had been shot and assaulted at around the same time. So basically, yeah, there was it, they're almost like a mafia-like hold some of these gangs had on, on the city at the time. Chopper himself would not reveal who the organised hit came from, and that's something that, again, he would, he would take to his grave. Later in life, he would just claim not to know and not to remember, but, yeah, he would never actually say who told him to kill Desmond, so some have even speculated that literally was the wrong place, wrong time for Desmond, or he said the wrong thing to Chopper, and that's why he did it. Although Chopper was not sent to prison for this murder, he would be sent in December of 1971 for violently assaulting a group of bouncers. These bouncers were allegedly beating up his friend and so Chopper stepped in, and unbeknownst to Chopper, the bouncers were also off-duty policemen. In a later interview when asked, what was your involvement in Desmond Costello's murder, Chopper calmly responds, I was just the bloke that killed him. I don't know why, and as I sit here now, I couldn't care less. Why had nothing to do with it. In early 1974, Chopper Reed claims the life of his next victim. This time it was Reginald Edward Isaacs. Reginald was a child sex offender and had first been convicted of this crime in 1952. He had a history of mental illness and had been discharged from the army after he was deemed medically unfit on psychiatric grounds. 
He attempted suicide in 1950 after a failed drowning. Reginald was found dead in his cell and it was thought that he hanged himself. With a history of suicidal thoughts and abuse, it seemed that suicide was the most probable answer for his death. Yet, in Chopper's final interview before his death, Chopper tells how he and his friend Charles entered Reginald's cell and beat him to death before displaying his body to make it appear as though it was suicide. During the interview, Chopper tells of jumping repeatedly on his head and back, but when this didn't kill him, he suffocated him to death in a bedsheet. With this one, though, he does say that they tied his arms around his back behind his back and then hung him, essentially, which, obviously, if someone's committing suicide, how are they going to do that? So, yeah. it's a bit of an odd one. Um, it, Obviously, we know with um, child offenders um, you know, and you know uh, paedophiles in prison is you know they're the worst of the worst. Um, apparently, it was kind of said between the, the, the uh, prison mates, anyone that sees him, it, you know, it's your duty to basically take him out. And so when Chopper saw him, he kind of was like, I didn't have a choice, but he wanted to do it as well. So uh, yeah, he, he describes that with quite a lot of glee. Yep. So here is Chopper describing this particular murder. Me and me and Charlie walked into his cell. Charlie fell into the ground. And I've jumped up on his bunk and tried to, and bang, jumped on his head, from his bunk onto his head, from his bunk onto his head, from his bunk onto his head, right? And then I've gone from the bunk, I slipped in off the head and hit the chest, from the bunk on, into the chest, bang, bang. And uh, he, he wasn't he wasn't dead, you know, but he was sort of like, and um, so I've taken his shoelaces off him, tied his hand, hands behind his back, and, uh, and then I've taken the sheets off him, wrapped the sheets around his neck, lifted him up with Mad Charlie, got the sheets around his neck, and I've tied the sheet up over the, over the top railing of the OBSO gate, pushed him down, and I've gone out of the cell, and I've closed the cell door. There was no one that saw us, we were pretty quick in here. And um, anyway, at seven o'clock that morning, uh, they've opened his cell door and, and found out that he, he committed suicide. 1975. Chopper was convicted of two counts of armed robbery. Subsequently, he is sent to the H Division in Penteridge Prison. This is where Chopper's infamous Overcoat Gang was created. The group received their name for their long coats which concealed their weaponry whilst in the prison. The coats were thick enough to provide some protection from prison stabbings as well. The Overcoat Gang were responsible for hundreds of acts of violence and it has also been reported that Chopper continued this fashion statement during the minimal amount of time that he had outside of prison during his stint. So basically he goes to H Division, he's not a fan of how uh, that particular part of the prison is being run and so forms his own gang basically to override the ruling gang uh, system that was in place at the time. On the formation of the Overcoat Gang and the fact that uh, uh, Chopper and his gang were making axes in the prison workshop, Chopper said, How do you think the other prisoners would see you? They, they, they hate my guts. I'm as pop popular as a pork chop in a synagogue. The criminal world is controlled by blood and guts. It always has been controlled by blood and guts. It always will be controlled by blood and guts. What motivate you to get involved in that um, gang war? Well, I just didn't like the I didn't like the faces of the people of the opposition. They they when I arrived in B Division, they seemed to have everything under control. They were making all the homebrews and getting all the dope in and organising everything and running around the place like kingpins. And uh, so I thought I'd um, I'd rectify the situation. And we uh, had some homemade axes made up in the engineer shop, and there was me and uh, a couple of other friends. I, I made them wear overcoats, and we wore, we had axes up our sleeves, and we went around and uh, and dealt with the situation. I do. That's the thing about Chopper. I do like the way he tells a story, and um, the film Chopper, which Eric Banner plays, and he plays him terribly well. It's very, very good. Um, highly, I do highly recommend watching watching the film. 
1978, in January, Chopper enters a county courtroom with an unloaded sawn-off shotgun. He then points it at the sitting judge's throat, who struggles with him but eventually disarms him with the help of some others. Chopper is then arrested by some police officers who are in the courtroom. He then later admits that he planned to hold the judge until inmate Jimmy Lohan was released. He then received 14 years in prison. Um, Jimmy would play is he's a key figure in the especially in the film, um, and just goes to show what Chopper would do for even for a friend going to that extent to try, to try and free him. In February 1978, Chopper asked another inmate to cut parts of his ear off in Pendridge's H Division. So it's quite a famous part of the film. He he basically feared for his life in prison. He had numerous people trying to go after him and, and, and get him in that ward. He asked to be moved. They said no, we're not going to move you. And he's like, well they're going to kill me and he's like no we're not going to leave you too too bad and he's like it's a famous scene in the film where he's like I'll be out of there by the end of today and they're like no you won't he's like yes I will and then he basically so then uh, so, he leads, so he basically gets another person to be chopping chop his ears off um, and yeah the, apparently the guy is very tentative with how doing it and you know worried saying oh you're not going to get me afterwards he's like no just chop him off and he's like trying to be gentle with him. he goes don't be gentle it. just cut at it and it's re- and it's quite the scene um, this would lead him to be declared to be insane once again and there have been two theories as to why Chopper decided to do this uh, one theory is that being in a prison filled with enemies as a member of the Overcoat gang was not a safe place for Chopper as I said you know trying to get out of there and by causing harm to himself he'd be moved to a different place for his own well-being however Chopper would later state that he did it so to win a bet though many consider these comments in jest he did have an operation to try and restore his ears but this was not successful so here's Chopper describing the act of another inmate cutting his ears off they said there was no way I would be getting a transfer so I made the simple decision that ears off equals transfer believe me it works and so I thought after that I was like that's quite an extreme thing in order to try and get a move out of prison I was like well, it's kind of, I guess in some people's eyes, that could be seen as terrific. Dan, hit it. Here we go. Tommy's trivia. <laughs> That's terrific. So um, I haven't done being moved from a wing or moved to a different part of the prison because it's kind of is a bit, bit niche. I wanted to see some kind of juicy stories, how people actually escaped out of prison, how they left prison. I found three particular stories I thought that's a in- that's a very well not interesting but terrific uh, way of way of getting out of there. So um, I've given them little names as well. Um, so the first one's called Juicy Freedom. Ooh. In 1986, an incarcerated man's wife named Nadine had been taking helicopter lessons. Her husband Michael, who was locked up, came up with a very odd way to threaten the screws in order to let him go upstairs in the prison. Um, and the thing that he used here. To threaten the guards, nectarines. Oh. He painted the nectarines to look like grenades. And he threatens the guards with them. (laughs) And they let him onto the roof of the prison. And from there, his wife, who was now quite the helicopter pilot, picked him up and they landed in a nearby football field. Um, So, yeah, nectarines. Uh, His wife was caught and arrested. And Michael was actually shot. But he survived after a failed robbery attempt. So, um... Yeah, that's the first juicy freedom. Juicy freedom. Just, I, I don't know how we got the things in prison to make a nectarine look so explosive, but um, I've got mm. quite an interesting one there. This one I called... Paint it with shit. Maybe. Um, this one I called Key Details. So there's three prisons in the UK who escaped by memorising the outline of a key. Uh, they all worked in the prison sheet metal shop, which is you know quite random one have there and they all had the necessary tools to make um, make this escape so they basically memorised the guard's master key outline and made a replica and that essentially allowed them to open every door in the prison 
which is absolutely bizarre. And they didn't just make a key, which you think they could probably do that quite sneakily. Allegedly, they also made a 25-foot steel ladder, <laughs> which I don't know how. And uh, they also made a homemade gun, apparently. So they were caught four days later from homemade escaping. Homemade gun? Yeah, homemade gun, uh, which Christ. I guess you could make a fake one. Like if you can get a right way of nectarines, like, more of a gun shape, but it's metal, you'd probably yeah. be. So they're caught four days later trying to map out a plan to steal a plane. It's like, just what guys, just go underground a bit. Stealing a plane. This last one I call her. Uh, he didn't he, did he? Oh. He didn't he, did he? And this is about a South Korean inmate who was a yoga practitioner for 23 years on the outside before he was arrested. After being uh, just five days in prison, he was so sick of it in there that he managed to squeeze himself through a food slot that was only 5.9 inches tall and 17.7 inches wide. So what is yoga body to do that? And apparently it only took him 34 seconds. This escape will get, get nicknamed the Korean Houdini, hence the Houdini, did it? Um, um, from journalists but he was caught just six days later, probably on a bender, <laughs> as in drinks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is uh, Thomas River. I thought, you know, just some interesting little stories about escaping prison. <laughs> Tom, that is terrific. Thank you very much. If anything, just to, you know, dry, drive you forward a bit, push you for greater heights, perhaps, Ben. I'm going to give this to Tom. Um, yeah. Thank you, mate. I'm looking forward to next week, Ben. Just, yeah, not really. <laughs> anyway, back to the case. Tommy's trivia. <laughs> That's terrific. You're still doing a great job, Ben, honestly. Honestly. In December just... of 1978. <laughs> in December of 1978, it seems as though tensions may have been lifted as Chopper, Lonan, and another inmate escaped H Division and climbed onto a roof. Great timing. Uh, on the roof, Chopper hit himself with a piece of nail-studded timber several times. The group were eventually caught and taken back to their cells. So I don't know necessarily if this was an escape uh, attempt. It was certainly maybe something to go along with, along the lines with himself trying to make himself look a bit more maybe um, unstable at this point. Um, but yeah, it's, it's quite a scene and it's, it's unrested the entire prison. Not long after this, Chopper was stabbed repeatedly by members of his own gang who wanted to kill him because they feared his first for a prison gang war was becoming uncontrollable. Chopper survived, but lost several feet of bowel and intestine in the attack. Bowel, please, Carol. Yeah, that sounds horrible. <laughs> um, yeah, in the film, they, they try and play with the storyline in terms of how linear all the things, the things are that happen and... Yeah, that scene is quite the... Uh, quite, I'm going to keep recommending that. I'll stop doing that. But yeah, very much worth a watch. August 1979. While serving time at Pentridge Prison, Chopper is stabbed in the stomach. In an altercation with Jimmy Lonan, Arthur Lonan feared Chopper was trying to hurt every person who was not in the overcoat gang with an ice pick to the back. Chopper received stitches, which he then allegedly split open the next day doing push-ups. So also just worth noting there that Jimmy is the person that obviously tried to basically get away from the judge and he's serving 14 years <laughs> and then Jimmy's stabbing him. Yeah. which is yeah so we now flash forward eight years to the year of 1987 and we're going between the months of april and may so at this point chopper has served his sentence and he's now back on the streets chopper shoots drug dealer christopher liapis in footscray australia when giving a reason for this murder chopper said i think your facts were good ben just saying <laughs> it's a bit late for that it's late for that <laughs> <laughs> I used to know the head of the Albanian Mafia. His name was Nor Davotsky. He ran the Builders Arms Hotel. He was a very close friend of mine. I shot Chris Liapis. That's the bloke in the Chopper movie they called Neville Bartos. 
and I shot Chris Liapis because he raised his voice to Norm Davodsky's eldest son. He then commits arson and burns down Nick Apostolidis' house after he shoots a drug dealer inside of the property. Burning down the house was a way for Chopper to destroy any potential evidence. He later wrote, I burnt Nick the Greek's house down, big deal. I love a sunburnt country. He also added, big deal, if you knew him, you'd want to burn it down too. For these offences, Chopper received at least two years for intentionally causing serious injury to Liapis, arson and reckless conduct in 1989. Burning down the house. It's Tom Jones, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. June 1987, Chopper kills Sammy the Turk Ozakam after shooting him dead outside Bojangles nightclub in St Kilda. Sammy was a drug dealer. He was 27 years old and was found at 8.30am with it being estimated that he'd been shot in the left eye less than one metre away. Chopper claimed that this killing was in self-defence when he later went to trial, and surprisingly, the jury believed him and found him not guilty of manslaughter. Although he would never serve time in prison for the murder, even Chopper was surprised with this when he was acquitted and he even said, Everyone swallowed it. I couldn't understand. When I killed Sammy, that wasn't self-defence. That was outright fucking murder. Um, he claimed that Sammy had a gun and he basically took the shotgun out to protect himself and shot him but apparently there's no gun involved whatsoever when he's yeah we'll, we'll play this uh, this interview for you now so it's quite funny when he's actually describing how he couldn't believe he got away with this and the fact that he'd outright murdered Sammy he's going into quite graphic detail about how he committed this murder and then he when he says that was outright fucking murder he apologises for swearing whilst also describing murder in quite graphic detail so so yeah it's just I found that quite funny so we'll play that for you now when I killed Sammy the Turk, that wasn't a self-defence. That was outright fucking murder. I mean, sorry, it shouldn't be swearing, but that was outright murder. I, I told um, the armory squad that night that, that it was self-defence. I said he grabbed the gun out of the front of me pants and I grabbed the shotgun out and click, click, click here and I've gone bang through the head. And I thought to myself, if anyone believes this story, they've got, they got rocks in the head. 1990, from the inside of his prison cell after being sent back for his serious injury to Liapis, arson and reckless conduct, Chopper had begun communicating via letters to a journalist. This journalist, named John Sylvester and Andrew Rule, compiled the letters together and then created the first in a series of books. So this would essentially go on to become what Chopper would release once he finally got back out of prison. November 1991, Chopper is released from Pentridge Prison and decides to move to Tasmania. However, he soon finds life in the countryside boring and too quiet, and after his later release from prison for committing more offences, he would eventually make his way back to Melbourne in 2001. It is believed he went to Tasmania because at the time gun laws were very laxed there. Which yeah, is, uh, that would change, wouldn't it? Yes, um, and there, there's the infamous interview where he's basically uh, showing off to a reporter and shooting bottles out of guys, this guy's hand and stuff like that. Just basically just being very... Uh, Cavalier. Uh, December 1991, Chopper's first book, Chopper from the Inside, is self-published. The book was continuously reprinted due to its success. The book has been said to be badly written, cliched, chaotically organised and partly bogus by crime writer Pete Corris, but people love the book. Sometimes done reviewing your interesting fact. Chopper himself said that the posh people love gangsters and in the book Chopper claims to have been involved in many killings. He writes, I regret nothing. May of 1992. <laughs> Chopper shot an associate. <laughs> so good. <laughs> May of 1992, Chopper shot an associate of his, Sidney Collins, in Tasmania. Sidney apparently fought too much, and so he was shot in the chest by Chopper. 
He had also invited Chopper to his wedding, but had demanded an $8,000 gift. Uh, so, yeah, again, there's an interview with Chopper about his reaction to being told he needed to give an $8,000 gift uh, for this wedding, and he was very unhappy about it. He this. was head of a, motor, a motorbike gang, and uh, apparently that was just the done thing, which... Yeah, Chopper didn't take too well to. So uh, after shooting him in the chest, he allegedly took Collins to the hospital and he told him shortly before taking him to the hospital, you're a staunch bloke, you won't say anything. He then asked Sydney if he wanted to be taken to the lemon tree or to the hospital, uh, with lemon tree implying that he would bury him. And Sydney was very keen on the hospital uh, at that point. In August of 1992, Chopper was taken to court following the shooting. He allegedly shouted during the trial, if I wanted to shoot the prick, he would be dead. Sydney ended up losing one kidney in the shooting. Eventually, however, the jury convicted Chopper of causing grievous bodily harm to Sydney, and he was sentenced to serve eight years in prison. So he would now serve uh, a sentence in Tasmania in a, in a different prison to the one he'd served in before. It was also in 1992 that Chopper made a very infamous television interview, uh, which Tom uh, made reference to, in which he played, he literally played Russian roulette with a live round in his pistol, firstly pulling the trigger to his own head and then to a journalist's head, uh, Rene Brack, before firing the live round into the sky afterwards. So... I don't know because there's a there's a shot of him holding the gun. Then there's a shot mm. of him. It all seems like one continuous shot. I don't think it was for the cameras, but she looks absolutely mortified when the actual live round goes goes off to the sky. But I still can't work out if it was real or not. I'm sure there's like a shot, separate shot where he puts the bullet in and he rolls the yeah. rolls the barrel. Very. I think very it's hard. been re edited so many times. I think for that yeah. put into different things as well as an example of it. It's kind of hard to follow it, but um, yeah, it's it's very interesting interview you could also imagine that being legit though couldn't you yeah chopper which is terrifying yeah definitely i think um that's the thing him being a wild card and him being unpredictable the film very much painted him as being very paranoid as well and always thinking people are out after him and then you know he did he did take a lot of drugs as well so uh, and obviously with the therapy he had as a, as a child i'm sure it all affected him later on in life in 1995 chopper married mary ann hodge whilst incarcerated at risden prison in tasmania uh, Mary Ann was an Australian taxation office employee. The couple were going to have one son named Charlie, who is allegedly named after Mad Charlie Higarlegi, who was killed by a gunshot. Chopper and Hodge would later divorce in 2001. On his son being born, Chopper said, Fatherhood changed me. I reckon I became a human being at 45 when I saw my first boy born. That's the moment I joined the human race. When I was 50 and I saw my second boy born, I became a fully paid up member of the human race. I have no regrets, but those moments told me what I should have been, a good human being. In 1998, Chopper is released from prison once again in the February of 1998. He is then featured on APC Television's McFeast live show. During this interview, he is intoxicated and talks about his gruesome escapades. This causes controversy and a flood of angry viewers called in to complain, especially regarding his humour surrounding his murders. In May of 1998, Chopper was charged with firearm offences after being photographed with a gun for a publicity shoot. However, he was later acquitted. In August of 2000, the film Chopper, starring Eric Banner as Chopper, is released to critical acclaim. Chopper himself said that the film is, quote, 100% lies and 100% truth rolled together to make 100% of nothing. 
Despite the movie apparently portraying my life and being a box office hit, the first ever adults movie to go to number one at the box office, I didn't get anything out of the movie. Not even a ticket to its premiere or a ticket to the AFI. I signed all my money from the movie over to the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Instead of taking lies, I am now saving them. Yet even it has not formally acknowledged my donation. Although Chopper would claim that he had no role within the film, this is not strictly true. It was him who decided that Eric Banner would be the perfect person to play him. After the two met in a pub, Banner was able to effectively copy Chopper's mannerisms. Chopper later commented, The trouble is, Banner does a better Chopper read than I do. I'm sure I've seen an interview as well with Eric Banner where he states, I don't know how to act, but I know how to copy people or I know how to become other people. Um, and uh, yeah, he really, I still haven't seen the film, but I've seen lots of clips from it. And obviously, Tom, you've spoke very highly of it. And I do rate Eric Banner. There's, 20, there's a 20 minute uh, video of uh, Banner basically shadowing Chopper and talking to him and just having a chat and just kind of like picking up on his mannerisms. And it's, yeah, it's quite interesting back and forth between the two of them. The film showed a slightly different Chopper to the one that we know and contradicted some of the events he had written about within his books. So maybe that's why he's come out as like a protection statement here to cover his own back. Despite saying that he was vehemently against drugs, the film showed Chopper was a casual drug user. Reflecting upon this portrayal of him, Chopper said, you have to have tried something to be able to say you hate it. Mm. He's kind of covering all bases here. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a statement, isn't it? 2001. Chopper features in a drunk driving advertisement. The advertisement features Chopper speaking directly to the camera at his kitchen table. He then undoes his shirt, pointing to different areas on his body where he has been assaulted in prison, and says, When I was in prison, I got a slashed face. My ears cut... What? I got a slashed face. (laughs) Fuck's sake, I can't read for shit. What do you know, Ben's done Dan? (laughs) Come back next time for another Bender's Dan. (laughs) When I was in prison, I got slashed in the face. My ears cut off. A butcher's knife here, an ice pick here, etc, etc. If you drink and drive and you're unfortunate to hit somebody, you ought to pray to God that you don't go to prison. So it's quite, yeah, it is quite a powerful advert, isn't it? And um, he's, uh, he's very good to camera. Um, which again that's that's the thing that's messed with me in this case because he is so down the line some people love him some people hate him but he has got I've never watched or researched a case where the individual at the center of it has as much like ability um, and, and dare I say it charisma because he, he has got both of those things as stated by Mr. Harold Scrooby, which is a fantastic name, chairman of the PCA, the Pedestrian Council of Australia, the advertisement won a gold lion in the film section at Cannes Lions 2001. I mean, I'm sure we're touching it, but you also did an advert about um, basically domestic abuse and saying how people end up in prison. Um, if you end up in prison, you know, they'll be waiting for him. And it's just that he does his famous chopper laugh there, which really... Uh, Yeah, sends the shivers up your spine. In 2002, Chopper appeared in the film Trojan Warrior. His character is named Eric Banner and played as a homage to Eric Banner playing him in the film Chopper. According to Screen Australia, the film follows the adventures of Stan the Man at Longinus in the role of Ajax, a one-man army that takes on the most evil collection of hitman ever put on film. Ajax must find and protect the Larrikin cousin Theo whilst battling his arch-enemy, Super Don Amandi Peroni. Sounds like a really nice big beer. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, I really fancy one now, actually. A couple of Superdons, please, on the Armada. <laughs> uh, directed by Selick Silverstone, the film was described as an action and a comedy. I really want to see that. Yeah. Should we do... We'll do a watch-along. We'll stream it. Oh. And have a few Superdon Armandi Peronis uh, at the same time. 
Damn. Uh, during this year, uh, Chopper also released his controversial book, Hookie the Cripple. Hookie. <laughs> Hookie. Hookie sounds so much better. <laughs> Chopper also released his controversial book, Hookie the Cripple. Deciding to take a change from writing his life stories, Chopper decided to take a turn to children's literature. The book was for young children, yet the amount of violence in it could be deemed an unsuitable, especially for a young audience, especially considering a butcher within the story is stabbed 21 times in the head. Yeah, it's not one for light reading there. The book was actually banned from one school, although Access Ed, the Queensland government body, actually encouraged it to be taught in schools. Reflecting upon the controversy, Chopper said, ban it, just go out and ban it. I'm going to make a fortune if they ban it. He then added, political correctness is turning Australia into a nation of Tupperware people. Wow. Quite like Tupperware people. That's a phrase. I love I love his final interview as well when he's like, will I be remembered as a, a, a great person? Will I be remembered as a great artist, a great writer, a great poet, a great singer? And he does the chopper laugh. He goes, I'd, I'd love to just sort of dip in and read the, read the papers about me. And he's like, he's, he's, he's dipping his fingers into all these different pies and he considers himself all these different um, entities. And uh, I had no idea that at one point he was a, a prospective children's author mm. um hooky the cripple mm. i'll look at it on amazon i'll get some reviews you carry on and we'll, we'll come back to the reviews in the january of 2003 chopper remarried for a second time with this time his bride being longtime friend margaret cassar the couple would go on to have one son named roy margaret would go on to say that her son quote only knew his father as a very loving doting dad totally removed from the violent world in which he once lived in july of 2003 chopper reed became a successful artist 27 of his paintings sold 24 hours into his first art exhibition chopper stated that painting became a form of therapy for him as it allowed him to relieve his anger some of the paintings sold for as much as £1,900 and the National Gallery of Victoria even brought one. Which actually, if you Google Chopper, uh, Chopper Reed artwork, I was pleasantly surprised. The artwork? It's not the worst in the world. It's quite abstract. It's got maybe some African influences there. I mean, it's not great, but I have seen worse. Uh, just look, I just found the Hooky the Cripple on Amazon. Uh, the front cover is... a. Uh... Man holding a dagger, bloody dagger. This is the grim tale of a hunchback who triumphs. It doesn't look much of a child, a children's book, I have to say, but there's no, there's no reviews on it at all. So. Deary me. In 2006, as Tom mentioned, Chopper features in another advertisement, but this time for domestic abuse. The ad sparked outrage with people calling for it to be banned and boycotted after Chopper stated that those who hit women and children will be punished in prison. The advert seemingly promoted a circle of violence. Peter Beatty said, If you are so stupid that you are going to use violence to try and resolve a problem, you've either got emotional difficulties, some insecurity of a kind, or no capacity to deal with your emotions. Chopper would also go on to take a stab at stand-up comedy, and he works with former police officer Roger Rogerson in a comedy show named The Wild Colonial Psychos. I swear we've done Roger Rogerson in another case. I'm sure that name's came up because we were like... Roger Rogerson? Sounds like a porn star. Especially police officer. Excuse me, Mrs. Police Officer Roger Rogerson here. <laughs> um, so teaming up with Mark Jacko Jackson, who Chopper had toured Australia with the year prior to this, the pair called themselves the kings of cutthroat comedy. The show details, as Letterbox puts it, the real stories of Australia's criminal underbelly told by those who were there on both sides of the law. He also released an album titled Interview with a Madman. The album was released by Rotten Records. Uh, he collaborated with artists such as Hijack and Torture, Justice, Lazy Grey, 
Low-Tech, Matty B, Necro and Phrase. He even made two music videos for his tracks, Night with Chopper and Remember Me. We've got to play some of this now, haven't we? Her self-esteem was low. The magazines would show what would proceed to grow. Now addicted, self-inflicted, help persisted. She resisted and kissed it. Goodbye to a destiny. Things will be fine. Chopper by now had become a fully-fledged Australian icon. His total book sales had not passed 500,000 and his live performances in which he showed a natural gift for comedy sold out multiple theatres up and down the country. In 2007, Chopper has to declare bankruptcy. So yeah, despite all this kind of, he's got fingers in every pie, as I mentioned, despite all of this, he's, yeah, he's not in a good financial state. Chopper announces that he had $80,000 in credit card debt and owed about $140,000 to 12 people for their payouts in private loans to him. Chopper said that he only had $100 in his account as he had spent the majority of his money supporting his family. In 2008, Chopper once again makes headlines as he is attacked by a tomahawk-wielding man. Chopper is arrested and taken in for questioning, but he was later released without charge. Chopper told the event from his perspective, stating, He hit me on the arm. I ran into the panel beater and I grabbed a pipe and I said, Come here now. And he jumped into a car and pissed off. I can see you both giggling. (laughs) Just smiling. A complex around my quotes now. And he jumped into a car and pissed off. It was unsavoury behaviour on the part of ex-prisoners who were trying to lay claim that I bashed them once in H-Division. The attacker has allegedly not been found. So that was the timeline of Mark Chopper-Reed. There is still one more alleged murder uh, to go into some details about in the aftermath. So we're going to start in 2009. So in 2009, Chopper revealed that he needed a new liver, but he was going to deny any offers he received. He said... I'm not going to ask for a liver transplant. It's not fair. I'm 55 years old. I'm not going to put my name down against some 10-year-old kid. And, you know, we've talked about transplants and the waiting list for hearts. When? We did it earlier in the episode in like a throwaway bit. (laughs) That's a bit redundant now. (laughs) Chopper continued his career as an actor in the years prior to his death. In 2011, he was part of the movie The Groomless Bride. And in May of 2012, he concluded filming on the film Pinball, which starred John Jurette. So he's from Wolf Creek. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've never seen. But... It's just, this is horror, isn't it? I'm pretty sure. There was some inspiration behind Ivan Milat with that movie. Wolf Creek. Oh, my gang. Maybe. Call me out if I'm wrong. In the years before his death, Chopper continued to cause chaos. In February of 2012, he was banned from firing a starting pistol at his son's little athletics, with the reason being that he failed a working with children check, unsurprisingly. So, yeah, he, there are there was some different articles read about this. Apparently, he was, you know, like when the in the American office, Dwight yeah. fires a live gun. Apparently, it was like that. Like, he wanted to shoot a gun. <laughs> For the start of a child's athletics race, um, but yeah, they, they were they were less happy about the fact that he didn't have a working with children check completed. Mm. A few months after this, Chopper made it public that he was battling with terminal cancer. He had already announced that he had contracted hepatitis C after using a blood-stained razor whilst in prison. So two weeks before his eventual death, Chopper filmed a paid interview with the Nine Network sixty Minutes program. So yeah, this. I highly regard the 60 Minutes uh, Australian show. It's very, very good. In this interview, Chopper admitted to killing four people, uh, Desmond Costello, uh, Reginald Isaacs, Siam, Sammy the Turk, Mehmet Ozakam, and former outlaw biker Sidney Michael Collins. The interview was released after his death, meaning he could not be convicted for any of the alleged crimes. When asked a question 
emotionally, how are you coping with the thought of dying? Chopper says the following, which we'll play for you now. Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't even hit me emotionally. It hasn't even... I don't even... You know, I haven't thought of dying. I don't think of um, lying in the grave and, you know, what's going on here, you know. I can't, I don't, I'd, like, I'd like to come back and see what all the fuss is going to be after I'm dead. Read a few of the papers and watch a few of the TV shows and listen to a few of the de- arty-farty debates, you know, that are going to be on after I'm dead. Was he or wasn't he a good writer? Was he or wasn't he a good artist? Was he or wasn't he a good singer? <laughs> Do you think there'll be a debate about whether you were a good or bad man? Oh, yeah, be a debate about that, yeah. <laughs> Is that debatable? Oh, I suppose it's debatable, yeah. So as we mentioned, Sidney Michael Collins was shot by Chopper but was not killed at the time of the first attack. And during this, this is the guy that asked for £8,000 for the wedding. Uh, during this interview, Chopper claimed that his retaliation for Sidney telling the police about the initial shoot. So during this interview, Chopper claimed that the reason why he would go on to, to kill him was in retaliation to Sidney telling the police after Sidney was saying, you know, I won't tell the police, just take me to the hospital. And also him being from a biker gang him kind of doing it, being a grass. Uh, Chopper looked very badly on that. He then killed Sydney and buried him in a nearby football ground in 2002. So basically what happened with that apparently is Sydney turned up to a, one of the gigs that Chopper was doing after being reformed and asked for him to, to actually sign some merchandise of Chopper's. Yeah. <laughs> Which is incredibly bizarre. And Chopper was like, I'm not going to sign that. What are you on about? They come, in, they come in the back room after the gig and they did and then uh, and they went off in the car and then Chopper were gone to kill him. Um, so yeah, Chopper kind of saying how you know how he's given up in a life of a crime. He he'd gone to do that um, as kind of just a late bit of revenge there. Sidney Collins had mysteriously vanished whilst taking a trip to northern New South Wales to recover an underworld debt. In 2010, it was concluded that it was most probable that Sydney was not deceased, but his location was unknown. Chopper's claim forced police to renew an appeal for any information that could give some semblance of truth to Chopper's claims, or finally give somewhat of a location for Sydney. Chopper, in his final interview, recalling murdering Sidney Collins is perhaps the most comical moment of the interview. What happened then? We took him, I've got him in a, I hopped into his car, going back to his place, bang, 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 bang. And uh, I shot him the last time with his gun. I killed him this time with his gun. That's how stupid he is. <laughs> I shot him the first time with his gun. I shot him the second time with his gun. How stupid is this person? This, he is an idiot, complete idiot. And this time, yeah. were you shooting to kill him? Oh, yeah, this time I was shooting to kill him. Last time he just got it in the guts and a trip to hospital. Very Christian last time. Not this time. Bang. Why did you murder him? Because he was an absolute turd. So, yeah, as you, as you heard, uh, when asked why did you murder him right at the end of this interview, his final interview. So he was essentially taking these because he died not long after this this interview itself. It was only a handful of days after this interview that he would pass away. So he was essentially not wanting to take anything to the grave with him. Some people still still dispute that he didn't. He wasn't behind the death of Sidney Collins. But when asked, why did you murder him? He responded, because he was an absolute turd. Because he was an absolute turd. Just like that. On the 9th of October 2013, Chopper Reed died. He was 58 years old at the time of his death. His manager announced that he had passed and his battle with liver cancer was now over. He died at Royal Melbourne Hospital. He turned from Chopper Reed to Chopper Red. That's very good. That's very good. Chopped Red. 
2014, there was an auction for some of Chopper's possessions. These possessions included a Christmas card with a disturbing poem, his brass cigarette lighter engraved Mark Brandon Reed 1000%, (laughs) and a Polaroid self-portrait. In the series of items to be sold, a newly released bunch of letters were sent to Renee Brack throughout 1992 and 1993. So she was the journalist that was... Uh, on scene in that very, very infamous interview and where he fired what could have been a potentially live round uh, to his head and then her head before shooting it to the air. The collection of 18 letters showed a sinister side to Chopper. He detailed in these letters that he was a, quote, no-eared monster. He also explained how he would like to kidnap her. In one particular letter, Chopper the no-eared monster said, Believe it or not, I really didn't shoot Sid Collins. He was shot, then driven to hospital, thus saving his life. I'm supposed to have shot him and then allowed him to be driven to hospital. The milk of human kindness does not run that thick through my veins. The fact that the nitwit was allowed to live should have crossed me off the suspect list. So yeah, this particular letter was in regard to the first time he shot Sid Collins, but again, some people took from that that he wouldn't have been then able to go and shoot him a second time, which obviously he could have done, and I definitely believe that he was responsible for that one. There has also been speculation as to whether Chopper was a police informant. As quoted by Mr. Noel Ashby, It sounds strange given his history. He always had a strange respect for police and no one ever felt endangered by him or threatened by him. However, a level of respect does not necessarily mean that he was an informant. And yeah, I've not found any kind of uh, interviews where they would ask him whether or not this was the case. And I would I would love to have heard his his reaction to that because I'm sure he would not have been a fan of that question. Andrew Rule stated on this particular theory, I know that he was often friendly with people when it suited him, prison officers and police when it suited him, but he probably caused more trouble for them than they did for him in various ways. He caused a lot of trouble for some police, so I think he might have exploited his contacts, but I don't know that he did any sort of high-level informing. Whether Chopper was an informant or not, we will most likely never truly know, as his death just leaves this question unanswered. And again, if he was at any point some kind of high-level informant, you would think that when he was trying to get moved prison wings, he wouldn't have to cut his ears off or have his ears cut off to do this. Um, You would think that if he had friends in higher places, they would simply just move him. In February of 2023, Charlie Reed, Chopper's uh, son from his first marriage, was charged with a number of driving, drug and firearm offences. To add to these charges, Charlie was also facing sentencing for burglary, stealing $7,000 of cigarettes from a service station and unlawfully possessing a dangerous article in a public place. This is quite sad when knowing that in 2013 he said during an interview, Most people are pretty good, some say nasty stuff, some just assume I'll be a criminal too. I've had comments from school kids like, why don't you just go to jail now? Um, Yeah, he couldn't move out of his father's shadow and he did end up actually following in the same footsteps as his father. Since his death, people have been debating whether we should be celebrating the life and crimes of Chopper Reed and people have argued that it's a hard question to tackle with Chopper because he only hurt those who had done wrong. Whether or not you agree with celebrating him or not, you cannot deny that he was a gifted storyteller even if his stories were heavily embellished. He liked to boast that he killed 19 people and attempted the murder of 11 others but also famously said he would never let the truth get in the way of a good yarn. And he is very good at yarning. He's one of the best, I'd say. He's a good yarner. So, yes, that was the case of Mark Chopper Reed. Um, yeah, truly fascinating one. Um, Dan, did you know much about this case before we jumped in? Absolutely zero. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one that, as I said, throughout the case, it's worth, definitely worth kind of watching some videos of Chopper. Um, watching the film is a good film, even though he 
didn't seem to particularly like it. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, definitely worth a watch. Eric Banner is very, very good in the film. Obviously, yeah, we're not meaning to glamorise Chopper. Uh, obviously, four people did lose a life and there's always a ripple effect from those actions and uh, innocent people are affected by his actions and uh, you know, some people would dispute whether or not the people that he claimed to have killed um, deserve that, obviously. Um, but yeah, just saying he's, he's quite the character. So with that in mind, we're going to move on to our lookalikes. Um, and yeah, I've, I've only got Chopper uh, this week. I've got a few ones that I feel are going to annoy you. Um, let me Good. just check how many I've got. One, yeah, two. I've got three that I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with, but yeah, they're going to annoy They're going to annoy you. So my first one, uh, I've actually used Eric Banner's excellent portrayal of, uh, of Chopper. So I'm essentially doing an Eric Banner lookalike here, but I've gone for... Uh, Commissioner Mick Foley. Um, so you're doing a lookalike for someone that we're not doing? Well, you could still do Chopper as Mick Foley. I could still find a, a decent Chopper pick, but that particular one with the gun to the head works well for the Foley with a thumb up. That's, yeah. I said it was going to annoy you. Second one. <laughs> second one. You've I, done an actor that's not him. Well, all right, look, I'll literally do it while we're on, on air. I'll get, get a picture of Chopper if it's really going to... Let's just go with this one. And also, got similar ears. Ear. Probably had a bit of his ear come off it. Yeah. There you go. So Commissioner Mick Foley, number one. Next one that's going to annoy you. Max, uh, played by Peter Kay, one of the bouncers from Phoenix Knights. Just a beard. Not even the right beard. Eyes and eyebrows. And yeah, he's got eyes, yeah. They shape. Also, the, was, you could say something's going on with that left ear there of uh, Max, Peter Kay. Uh, and finally, Cousin Eddie from National Lampoon's <laughs> Christmas Vacation. My favourite Christmas character of all time. Bad on bad. No, they're all, they're all pretty good. Oh, I hate how much Dan enjoys that. <laughs> Mine's not not the worst one. I didn't even use. Look, didn't even use that. <laughs> Fucking one. hell, that was literally just a mustache. Steven Seagal. Oh god. Yeah. Are you alright, Ben? Are you good? Yeah, I'm good. Checking in, making sure you. Yeah. Thanks for checking in. All good. Uh, I've just got one. It's just um, from Desmond Costello. I thought a little bit like. How do you? Yeah, that's good. That is good, actually. Yeah. But I couldn't. I was really struggling with Chopper, but it looks like Ben was as well. But um, <laughs> if that is the case of Chopper. Uh, we hope you guys, maybe guys, might have learnt a bit about the person who I don't think he's that well known, especially over here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, very interesting character. I, I would I might look and see if he's done an audio book. Probably unlikely. It's probably too late for that, but we'll see. We shall see. But yeah, thank you for joining us, uh, joining us for this week's case. So we'll be back next week with another big, big episode, the seventh episode of Series 8. A bit of a mystery this time. We've done a bit of everything so far this series, and now we're going to go over to a bit of a mysterious set of circumstances and a slightly more recent case as well. So we're excited for that one. And we're going to a part of the world that we've never been to before. So few little hints there we'll leave that with you if you just can't wait until next week we have currently got at the time of recording 121 extra episodes completely exclusive and hosted over on icmap.co.uk those episodes are available in video and audio format we also have a private rss feed so you can chuck them into your favorites uh, podcast player and take them on the go with you maybe go out for a fish and chips 
or just go for a run. You know, you can do anything you want. Um, we also do monthly live streams and our side podcast, AI Karumba. The third episode of that particular series will be going live Ooh. next week over on the site. Uh, we also, as, as I mentioned, have early access, monthly live streams and a private Discord on there. So check it out. There's also a load of merchandise. We've seen people sending photos of their uh, hoodies, T-shirts, mugs. There's a whole host of stuff. We've got caps, stickers, badges, everything. So uh, I've, I've done a, bit, a fair bit of plugging now, so I'll leave that with you until next week. Thanks, plug man. No problem, Sparky. I'm <laughs> much happier with that. Yeah. Plug man. Yeah. Just yeah. hair all over it. And- no hair. Okay. But yes, that is that's this week's case. And um, like we always say, we say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, unless uh, it's fucking bitching on comments on YouTube. Well, you don't need to. I am. Uh, unless it's unless it's killing someone because they're a turd, you can just flush it. Hey, plug me. Flush it. Yeah. Flush it. <laughs> Click it. Flush it. Plush it. None of those words. <laughs> yeah, fuck it. What? No, I don't think Kick there's it, a fuck it. Fuck it. Kick it. Plush it. Pluck it. I don't even know what I did then. Um, unless flush it's it. flush it. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. On that note. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Please leave us a review. Fuck it. Flash it. Flash it. Flash it. Flash it. Flash it. <laughs> All best. Two okay, people. <laughs> I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.